Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. I'm talking today with Tia Powell, psychiatrist and bioethicist. She's director of the Montiflor Einstein Center for Bioethics and of the Einstein Cardoza Master of Science in Bioethics program, as well as a professor of clinical epidemiology and clinical psychiatry at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx, New York. Very welcome to the podcast, Tia. Maybe you could start by telling us why you became a doctor. How did you get into medicine? It's a long time back. I hardly remember now. <laughs> no, I would say, you know, it's funny. No one else in my family is a doctor. Where There are many lawyers. And I myself was really interested in literature. So it was a little bit of a an odd turn for me. But I think I felt that it was very important to me to see if I couldn't um, do something that would be useful. And for whatever reason, I wasn't sure that other things that I might do would be. So I, I very late, really in my last year at university, I decided I wanted to try for medicine. So I had to go back and take, you know, sort of silly introductory courses. I think I had to take like a pre-calculus course and sort of start all over. But I've really never regretted it. I really was able always to do lots of uh things that satisfied my urge to do things in the humanities. So I was able to do that. I sort of missed literature and all of that kind of stuff, but I thought uh, I was able to do it anyway. And it always made me happy to do something that felt connected to other people. And that was an attempt to kind of address how we can be of use in the world. So I guess that's really why, why I started into it. So the arts is very much in your DNA. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. So you went from that to something very scientific, and you've done a lot of work with dementia. Why dementia? Well, uh, as is true of so many of us, dementia is in my family. Both my mother and her mother had dementia. And so, uh, and I'm a psychiatrist by training. So, I, you know, I think I felt that I should know something about that. But in terms of being a family member of someone with dementia, I really found I didn't know anything useful. I really didn't. So I think that made me sad and puzzled and made me really want to find out more about dementia and figure out if I couldn't share some of what I learned with other people. I've heard you speak on other podcasts and I've heard you say that by the time dementia gets to the attention of doctors, it's really become quite a problem for families. And that's certainly true if you look at the literature in Australia and around the world. It's family that first spots the problem. And then eventually it comes right. into the experience of the, the doctors who are looking after this person or, or at least helping the family to cope. Where do you think we're going to be in the future with this? Do you think it's always going to be like that, that the diagnosis will be made at the point where it's almost a catastrophe in someone's life? I think we'll, we're likely to get better. I don't think we can be much worse than we have been to date. Mm. I do think that, uh, you know, we may have better biomarkers, but of course those don't really tell you if you will get dementia. They might be able to tell you in advance that you're at risk for it. Mm. But dementia is a clinical diagnosis. You don't, uh, no matter what lab tests or anything else anybody does, it's really your function. Mm. that defines whether or not you have dementia. It's that kind of loss of cognitive function from what your baseline was that defines it. So you have to have symptoms and they can be subtle. Sometimes the family might know. Actually, if people are working, sometimes it's people you work with that may know. Mm. So that, uh, for instance, your ability to 
handle arithmetic, financial capacity is one of the earliest things to go. Mm. So sometimes, unfortunately, there are people in business who've been, you know, tremendously capable for all their career. And then suddenly they're making very uncharacteristic errors, mistakes. They can't do mental arithmetic anymore. They can't make a good judgment about what something is worth or worth or whether or not something is risky. Mm. So there are very serious symptoms like that that sometimes are noticed by colleagues instead of family, unfortunately. Now, I want to go back to the question of biomarkers because one of the issues with biomarkers is recognizing people who are at risk but may not necessarily develop dementia. The problem with biomarkers, I guess, is that you are picking up or you're telling somebody that they're at risk of a condition they may not develop, but at a point at which they are functioning perfectly well. So it's and, and, and the treatment doesn't exist, as we, as we know. Currently, there, there's very limited treatment for dementia. So it's a real ethical issue, isn't it? I agree, yeah. I have to tell you, I, I'm very ambivalent about biomarkers. I was reading an article the other day about, um, you know, this will be great. We can start using biomarkers in primary care, and this will be fantastic. And I thought, I don't think that's a good idea at all. I really think that primary care physicians have their hands full. And if you really want to help somebody who you think is in cognitive decline, first of all, again, it's a clinical diagnosis. You can tell somebody, people put too much stock in biomarkers. And the last thing that you want is to give somebody the impression that it's all over with them. They're a hopeless case. They may as well not try. It's a devastating thing to do to somebody. And I think it can actually speed decline. Sure. Uh, for some people to give them a biomarker and say, well, you're at risk for dementia. I, I went to a conference today at the hospital where a, an orthopedic surgeon was talking about how important it is to get people who've had a hip replaced up and out of bed the same day as their surgery. And he said the data are quite clear. If you let somebody lie in bed for more than a day or so, they decide that that's it, I'm crippled. And then they spend days and days in bed. And then the recovery is infinitely longer in the out, and the final outcome is not as good. So it's tremendously important in medicine to address the psychological sense of injury. And I'm afraid that biomarkers may be very unhelpful in that light. They would. And of course, insurers would love it because it would mean they could identify people who might cost them a lot of money in the long term. So there are many disadvantages out there to having this done. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm not anti-science. I'm very pro-science. But I think telling people as you age, aging is a great thing in general. It is better, as they say, than the alternative. But um, you'll be at risk for dementia the more you age. And if it's in your family, you're certainly at risk too. So take a moment and think about how you're living and think if there are things that you're willing and able to do that will improve your chances of living healthily into old age. And I actually think for a primary care doctor to take the time to say all that to somebody is vastly more helpful than to check their biomarkers. Yeah, I've heard you also say recently that, you know, by the time they find a treatment, if ever there's, there is a treatment, and there probably is, they, by the time they find their treatment, it's, not, it's going to be too late for people like you and I, because we, we're looking at, you know, maybe 30 or 40 years into the future. So what is it that can help patients today, other than what you've just said, which is to tell people to live as healthy a life as they possibly can? Well, that's a really interesting question. I think 
We do think that there are some things, of course, that may help slow down cognitive decline. There's no guarantee. There's absolutely no cure for dementia. And by the way, if you read something or hear somebody tell you, oh, if you do this, it will prevent dementia, this person is a charlatan and you should really (laughs) not pay attention to them. So, you know, we all should live a healthy life and being fit and eating more fruits and vegetables, all all of that is too good for all of us. But it's also important for us to think we're not going to have a cure for the baby boomers. So, but we'll still have many, many people who will have dementia, many millions across the world. And we need to think better about care for them. There will be lots of us who will have dementia. And what's the sort of care? We could do better at that. So that's something that actually we all need to think about. What could we do in our community to better support people with dementia? What could we do to support family and other people who care for those with dementia. And that, I think, is something that we can work on. And certainly physicians and health policy experts can work on that, but also just community members, people who have dementia in their family may want to think about what are some of the things that I might want to support me when I have dementia? And can I look at my community and see if those things are available? And can I work on them if they're not there? Okay. So what have you seen on the horizon that you think will make a big difference to the outcome for patients who've got cognitive impairment? Well, as I say, I don't think it's going to be for us a medication. I think we're we're ways away from that. But I do think there are better forms of care. I think there are some really interesting smaller care facilities that are more sort of family style and family size, maybe 10 or 12 people with a communal dining room and very welcoming to visitors and friends and family, not the kind of old style, scarier nursing home. They're very large and where they're really sort of intimidating for everybody else, kind of keep people with dementia out of sight and and make it very difficult for family and people in the community to have any interaction with the people with dementia. So I think integrating people with dementia more into the community, thinking about helping support people who want to and who can stay at home. But even if you can't stay at home, if that's no longer right or safe for you, what is the kind of facility that you could go to that might feel like that's a good place to be? I'm happy to be there. So I think there's some very exciting innovations with that. And also I think there's some, you know, long ago, the type of care that was thought right for somebody with dementia was actually called custodial care which really doesn't sound very nice. It doesn't sound very welcoming at all. No, it sounds like jail, doesn't it? I do think now, yeah, it sounds like jail. It sounds like, you know, there's a guy with a mop and not much more, you know? So I, I think there are now some very good people who are thinking about, that's not right for anyone. There should be joy in every life. And what is it that you could do to bring joy to a life with dementia? And there are some things you can do. And music is the great success here. So a lot of people, even with quite advanced dementia, can really still enjoy music. And that's wonderful. So a lot of care facilities and programs are really incorporating music into care for dementia. And that's a great thing. Yes. I love the idea of it being a small unit where you have small, you know, small numbers of families and you have this kind of caring community environment. The challenge, of course, is that one in four, certainly in Australia, for example, one in four people will will be over the age of 65 by in the very near future. Therefore, the cost of this care is going to be enormous 
if we are to provide that. It's a huge challenge. It's a huge yeah, challenge. Yeah, it's a huge challenge. Can you see any any way around yeah. that? Can you see any can you see any silver lining on the horizon? Well, not a silver lining, but I do think that there are ways that we can be smarter. I mean, I think you're right. Our, our population absolutely is aging, and it's feasible to have a small care home with a dozen people, and you know, many of them are helping prepare the meals and doing activities. But as that group ages, and many get into their 90s or more, or their dementia advances, so that they're all very seriously ill and really maybe bedbound. Well, then you're really going to need a lot more care. So that's really tricky, and it's hard to figure out how you're going to do that. So I think because we ha- will have a much smaller ratio of young people who could do care, we're probably going to have to be smarter about technology. We're going to have to think about we don't want people with dementia or anyone with a disability or a chronic illness to feel that they're just relegated to being cared for by a machine. But I think we also need to use human carers more efficiently so that if there's, um, you know, that one example I like to think of is, uh, you know, Americans absolutely hate bidets. We don't, they hardly ever see one in, but they're a great thing. And there are actually are sort of expensive, fancy versions of bidets that are basically toilet bidets. And being incontinent is one of the really big challenges in dementia as it advances. It's it's so against every taboo to care for, for instance, a parent, your parent who becomes incontinent. It's terrible, and it means for a lot of people that's the end of staying at home. But if you could figure out a way to do that that wasn't embarrassing, that worked, that wasn't frightening for the person with dementia, and, and maybe technology can help us there. Maybe, you know, it is a foolish expense for a regular person, but actually – a toilet bidet, if it means not having to go into the much more expensive nursing home for a year or more, that's a good investment. And it actually could be a really good use of technology. And it sort of spares the caregiver, spares the person with dementia. So I think there are things like that, that we've been in a way too delicate, too sort of squeamish to think about. But these are real world problems, incontinence. You know, we, it's embarrassing to think about, but because we've been embarrassed, we haven't done a very good job of thinking about it. And we need to figure out, okay, what does that person need? How can we do that? How can we keep um, this person feeling like they haven't lost their dignity and we haven't required from their family members a sacrifice that's simply too great, that's more than they can comfortably handle? And when you think about it, you know, architects, when they're designing a home for a 30, 40, 50-year-old, don't think about these kind of issues, that when this person's going to be a certain age, they're going to need that Housing is a huge issue. It's a huge issue, isn't it? And and we build houses that are not designed for somebody who's got cognitive impairment. Right. Well, they're not designed for young children either. So if you design a house well, it should be welcoming to a wide range of people. It should be safe for a toddler who's learning to walk. It should be convenient for young parents who have children in strollers that they have to get up and down stairs with. Um, It should be safe and convenient for an older person who has difficulty with stairs and may need uh, door handles that are easy to operate and water faucets that that are easy to operate. So if you really design something that's inclusive and convenient for lots of different kinds of people with different skill levels and disabilities, it really would be better for everybody. Mm. 
And the, and the challenge, of course, is to make that kind of facility attractive, not look like, you know, your traditional home for somebody who's got a disability. Right, right. You don't want it to look like a hospital. And no. it doesn't have to, actually. It's, you know, listen, whoever can design, you know, all these wonderful little technical devices or iPhones and things like that, there are great designers out there. And there are people who are beginning to think about making a life with disability a life that includes beauty, that includes joy. So you can have grab bars that don't look like they're in a prison. You can make them colorful. You can make them really attractive looking. And you can have a disability-friendly layout, a one-story layout of a house or you know, very easily accessible elevators, that kind of thing. You can make disability-friendly housing that's just nice for everybody. And that would be ideal. Now, you know, retrofitting our aging housing stock, that's a whole nother story. That's going to be really hard to do. What would you like to see happen sooner rather than later from your perspective, given, given that we are definitely all heading to be older and many of us will end up with cognitive impairment? I, I think I'd like to see more investment in research that doesn't look only at the cure for dementia, but really good research that looks at quality of life, looks at wellness, looks at the sense of well-being, both for people with dementia and their caregivers. And there is some research like that. But over the last 40 years and more, absolutely, the lion's share of funding has always gone to research into the cure and primarily for pharmaceutical research. So I'd really like to see us switch and take the notion of care seriously and have well-designed studies necessary to figure out, you know, what kinds of things actually could be good palliative care in dementia? What could really bring comfort? What kinds of resources do family caregivers need? How would you do that, you know? And there, it's beginning to happen. I'm actually on a committee for America's National Academy of uh, Science, Engineering, and Medicine that's going to set up a, a 10-year research program trying to figure out what sorts of research and what sorts of investments should be done. So I'm very excited about that. And I would love for it to happen immediately. It'll take about a year to do that, though. Mm. Well, a year isn't, isn't a long time. I, I suspect it may take longer in other parts of the world. Of course, the challenge is that people, governments in particular, like to invest in things that have a commercial have commercial potential. So the idea of a pill that cures dementia has enormous uh, appeal to funders who, who see this as a potential to commercialize and, and get gains in that way. Yeah, I think that's true. And, you know, someday we may get there. It's really not going to happen for, as we've said before, the baby boom generation. But, you know, there are other things too that I think if you make a good service or a good product, I think people would pay for it. I think if you really designed attractive, disability-friendly housing, I think a lot of people would love that. I mean, it does have to be affordable, but you can you can do that. I mean, you can have sort of pleasing design that's also safe and, and useful for people. I, I also think if you have technology, if you have apps, I mean, there are some um, support groups for caregivers of those with dementia that operate online. And that's that's a brilliant innovation. If you're a family caregiver and it's hard for you to get out of the house, you might well be able to sit on your computer, you know, and be able to actually connect with other people who are doing this and share advice and tips and experiences. That's so simple and it's so inexpensive, but it actually can make 
an enormous difference for somebody who's who's staying at home and trying to care for a loved one with dementia. So I think we can do things like that. And and if you can figure out useful interventions for people, boy, there are a lot of people who need them. So I think they, there probably is some way to commercialize some of these things. Absolutely. And perhaps one of the answers might be to to aim at the 40, 50, 60-year-old market because they're potentially still earning a wage. They're still able to invest. They're still able to buy things. They're not relying on their pension to pay for things. And if you could persuade them that I need to buy a house that has these facilities because in another 10, 15 years, I'm going to need them, maybe that will be the answer. Yeah. Those adults who are 40 to 60 um, are often caring for older relatives. And if you could figure out better, easily, really easily accessible ways to communicate with an elder who's far from you, if you're off at work or if they're in a different city, if they're in a different city, I and mean, if you're in Melbourne, but your ancient parent is off in Sydney, you know, how would you be able to sort of be able to kind of pop in digitally and check in on them pretty easily? And we're getting there, but we could do a lot better with that. A lot of our technology is not easily accessible to somebody with cognitive impairment. So figuring that out, that would be fabulous. That would be really a wonderful service. Yeah, look, it's fantastic to hear your perspective that, you know, technology, architecture, and I dare say marketing is going to be really important because you need to market these solutions to people who may not immediately see the need for them, but within the next 10, 15, 20 years, they're definitely going to be in the market for something like that. Absolutely. And I think design is key here. I think really intelligent design that takes face on some significant challenges in dementia. And I say some of them are very embarrassing, things like incontinence, obviously, but there are also issues of people with dementia who lose their way. So they go out and they can't find their way in or they lose their sense of time. So they don't know it's a bad idea to go out at two in the morning. So ways to help people be safe but still not feel like they're imprisoned, not feel like they're locked in somewhere. So that kind of thing also, I think, could be incredibly helpful. And and figuring out ways to get good food to people. I mean, somebody who isn't really capable of cooking for themselves anymore, but lives alone, you know, thinking of better ways to get appealing, good nutrition to people. You know, Australia and the U.S. are both very developed nations with uh, a reasonably high income. And in both our countries, there are still older people who don't get enough to eat. And that's really, that's not right. So figuring out how we can make sure that that's just not true, that would be great. And I do think technology can help a lot there. Yes. On that note, Tia Powell, it's been a great honour speaking with you today. And I very much look forward to catching up with you in the near future. It was lovely speaking with you. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at the Journal of Health Design dot com.